Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the NJC Podcast. When a drug recognition evaluator or expert is on the witness stand, have you ever wondered about their background and training? Or what happens in the field when a DRE examines a driver for impairment? Our podcast host, Joseph Sawyer, called up Sarah Garner, Traffic Safety Resource Prosecutor for North Carolina, and Mark Picker, Alternate Public Defender for Washoe County, to ask them about what a judge needs to know about what DREs do. Let's listen. So I'm just delighted to have you with us, and I want to thank all of our listeners today for joining us for this podcast as we talk about drug recognition experts. And we have two experts with us today who are going to talk about this issue, uh, Mark Picker and Sarah Gardner. Uh, Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get involved in this type of work? And, and Well, I, I've been a prosecutor for 28 years now, and I started off in Knoxville, Tennessee as, as an assistant DA, worked there for five years, and then we migrated over to North Carolina. I worked in a DA's office here for 16 years before I took the position I have right now, which is traffic safety resource prosecutor. I work out of the conference of DAs in Raleigh at this point. And my main... Um, job requirements are too. I do a lot of training. Um, I do some conflict cases, still do some trial work, uh, help out officers with issues that they've got, help prosecutors with issues they've got, write briefs, but it's all focused on highway safety matters and primarily on impaired driving. Um, the reason why I got into DWI work, because to be very honest with you, I, I, I couldn't stand trying DWIs when I was a, a, just a, a line prosecutor, but I tried a, I got assigned a vehicular homicide where a woman had been killed by the driver of a commercial motor vehicle who was highly impaired. He actually had a 14 alcohol concentration. And um, and it just made me so mad because there was no reason for her to die. When um, most of the homicides that I had tried in the past, the, the person who killed somebody else had a reason. There was never a good reason, but there was a reason. They were wanting to get money from them. They were wanting to get drugs from them, some other reason like that. And when it comes to vehicular homicide, the only reason is selfishness. And because of that, it's also 100% preventable. And so I started trying DWI cases again, and here I am. Thank you, Sarah. Now, uh, Mark, how, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Well, I've been an attorney for 30 years. I'm currently the uh, alternate public defender for Washoe County, which means I have the secondary uh, public de defender office here in Reno. Uh, I've been doing criminal defense for my entire career. I started, I, in fact, I went to law school to do criminal defense. Uh, I grew up, uh, my parents taught me a lot about uh, civil justice and standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves. So I got involved in criminal defense because those are the people who need that uh, assistance the most. Those are the people that are accused of things. And even if they've done something wrong, they are looking at being punished for maybe the worst day of their lives or the worst moment in their lives. And so they need somebody to stand next to them and stand up for them. And the other part of it is I'm a firm believer in the U.S. Constitution. And uh, I think that's what I do every day is I defend the Constitution because if the government is allowed to step over the Constitution for those people who are tremendously guilty, there's nothing stopping them from stepping over the Constitution for those people who aren't guilty. So that's what I do. Thank you, Mark. So here's a question for the two of you. What is a drug recognition expert? 
Well, uh, a drug recognition expert is a highly trained law enforcement officer, traffic officer generally. And a drug recognition expert is, a, is an individual that can uh, look at a person who there's an issue that they are, are potentially impaired on a drug other than alcohol generally and make a determination as to what category or categories of drug that person is taking. And that's based on um, the officer's observations of the individual, on standardized field sobriety tests, on tests other than the, the basic three standardized field sobriety tests, <clears throat> which are horizontal gaze and nystagmus, walk and turn and one leg stand. Um, they look at such things as the individual's uh, blood pressure, pulse, temperature, there, uh, all sorts of, of things related to their eyes. And, and based on that, they can take these observations and information that they have gotten from other officers involved in the case and their interview of the subject. So the drug recognition expert can take all these observations, the signs and symptoms, and then uh, the, the interviews that they have done with the individual, and then come up with a category or categories of drugs that they suspect that this individual's been using. Uh, that's, that's followed up with a uh, blood test to verify what the officer has observed, and they just make an, a, a, a wonderful source of information for a judge or jury as to what this individual had consumed before they got in their car and, or, or vehicle and drove it. Now, Mark, I have a question for you. Are the qualifications and credentials for a drug recognition expert, are they consistent from state to state or even county to county? Well, they're, they're supposed to be, and, and that's part of the problem is that we all have to start with the idea that these drug recognition evaluators, I, I, the word expert has been actually disfavored by a number of states when they refer to DREs. They, they refer to them as drug recognition evaluators instead of experts because expert connotates something uh, from the very beginning as being different. But what we have to start off with is the fact that the DREs are police officers. They receive training, and some, and they are supposed to receive the same kind of training and the same level of training to meet a certain criteria. But there are different levels of people who call themselves uh, not drug recognition evaluators or experts, but people who have some training that want to portray that they have the same level of training. And one of the things that I know that uh, Sarah and I have actually talked about in the past and, and we in our presentations is the fact that the drug recognition evaluation program is very, very lengthy and very, very strict. But it also requires that that person follow the criteria as established by the, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration uh, almost to the letter. Otherwise, things start to go a little bit sideways. So let me, uh, another question. Let's, let's talk about this. Uh, would a drug recognition expert or evaluator, um, does that qualification, does that certification um, meet uh, a Dalbert test? And I know, Mark, that Nevada is not a Dalbert state, but uh, Sarah, your state may very well be. And, and would it meet it a, uh, the criteria for a Dalbert? In North Carolina, it definitely does. Um, not only because it's it's been through the through the the steps in court, but North Carolina, along with some other states, have have actually um, statutorily found it 
to satisfy the uh, the requirements of Daubert. The, the the main thing is the reliability of the science. And in North Carolina, a statute was passed that says essentially that if an officer has gone through the DRE training and if the officer maintains current certification as a drug recognition expert or evaluator, that they that the science is deemed to be reliable science. So, and Mark, how so about the great a, state of Nevada? Well, in this, because we're not a Daubert state, uh, it's a little bit different. It, 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 we're a hybrid state. We're not Daubert or Fry, uh, which a number of states are. There's a, there's always a question. A DRE can meet that requirement, but it is a case-by-case basis. There's nothing uniform uh, that says that everybody who's ever attended a DRE program is automatically qualified as an expert or to testify as an expert. So, uh, and there's a number of states, in fact, uh, uh, the state of Oregon has said that yes, DREs can testify as expert witnesses, but only once the judge has examined and evaluated whether every bit, uh, every one of the um, tests that was in, that was given to the alleged uh, person who's under the influence was done in a proper way. So there's a so th- there's a number of states. Sarah's is correct. There's a number of states that uh, have statutorily said that if once somebody is uh, certified as a DRE, that's sufficient. There are also a number of states that don't find that to be sufficient, and those are the states that, in particular, don't allow uh, the DRE to be called a drug recognition expert. There, that's uh, those states are much more uh, on the side of a drug recognition evaluator and allowing this person to testify as to their observations, but not allowed to come up with any conclusion to the jury or to the uh, trier fact. So what is the science behind a drug recognition evaluator? question to answer. The, the DRE matrix that I mentioned before divides all drugs into seven specific categories. For example, uh, central nervous system, system depressants. That would include alcohol. And it's very simple for a judge or juror to make a determination as to what the signs and symptoms of alcohol are. But another drug that falls in that category is Xanax. So a person who has been consuming Xanax is going to show the same signs and symptoms as a person who's impaired on alcohol, with the exception of not having the odor of alcohol. Another category is central nervous system stimulants, cocaine, amphetamines, methamphetamines. Uh, The third category is hallucinogens. That would be like LSD, ecstasy, peyote. The fourth is dissociative anesthetics. Ketamine, also known as Special K, which is actually an animal tranquilizer, but has become very popular in, in humans, too. I mean, on a prescription basis for things such as cluster headaches and migraines. PCP, dextromethorphan. Uh, the easiest example of that is Robitussin, and it's, it's known as robo-tripping when you drink a bottle of Robitussin, and you're going to show the same signs and symptoms as a person who's been using PCP or ketamine. Narcotic analgesics are a big one right now because that includes heroin, which, of course, is a huge problem. also includes morphine, Vicodin, Percocet, drugs of those nature. 
the next category is inhalants. Paint, glue, dust off is one that we see very commonly that's used to clean computer screens, but if you have dust off, you will have a strong reaction to it. And finally, cannabis, which would be, you know, marijuana, and then also hashish and things of that nature. Each one of these in the matrix has specific signs and symptoms that the officer is looking for, such as pupil size, increased pulse, and things of that nature. So I guess the science behind the DRE would would come into how an individual's body will generally react to the, the drug that they have consumed. Um, they also take into consideration just their basic observations based on the officer's experience and the officer's training. You know, again, it's it, judges and jurors sometimes have a hard time wrapping their head around somebody who is impaired on, on a drug such as Percocet that has been lawfully prescribed, that is being taken in the proper manner. But the best example that I can give is Ambien. Ambien is widely prescribed for people with sleep problems. Ambien is not illegal if you have a prescription. It is not illegal to consume Ambien. But trust me, if you take Ambien and drive a car, you've got a problem. So the the I guess the science behind it is doctors, um, eye specialists, uh, all these people that participated in coming up with the DRE protocol way back in the 70s um, came up with specific categories where generally you will see this. Now, it's not going to be the same for every person, um, but generally this is what you're looking for. And then when you take all these things into consideration, you can come up with a, a more or less a, a, a diagnosis of what category, not specifically what drug, but what category of drug the individual's been using. I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the DRE is used and and to really come up with probable cause to take that search and seizure, whether it's a blood test, to the next level. Is that correct? Well, in well, fact, that's one, one of the court, that's what the court in Oregon has, uh, the, the Supreme Court in Oregon has really concentrated on, is that, okay, that gets us to the drug test, to the actual chemical test. But without the chemical test, uh, if that part has not been uh, has not been properly done or wasn't done at all, then we're not going to let the DRE testify because that is the confirmatory of even though there's some scientific basis, and, and Sarah's right, there's a lot of scientific basis for the observations, they are observations. They are subjective observations. There are some objective criteria that the officer is supposed to address, but there is, but in looking or making that decision, it is still the subjective opinion of the officer that this person that they are examining either did or did not meet those criteria. So what are some evidentiary objections uh, that both of you have heard regarding uh, DREs in the courtroom? Well, on the defense side, there's a number of them, and one of them is that medical training is that this we're being at this officer is now being asked to make some medical observations, including blood pressure, pupil size, using a pupillometer to dis, to determine pupil size. There's, so there's a lot of question of okay, what level of training have you had? If you were never a paramedic and you were just a line officer and now you took DRE training, do you have the requisite training to get there? Then there's also the question, uh, and one that I, uh, I encounter most often is uh, the first step uh, for a DRE when they arrive on scene is to talk to the officer who requested a DRE. 
So that initial officer is then telling them their conclusions or their observations. So the DRE is not starting from a blank slate. They're starting with somebody else's opinion, a fellow officer's opinion, and they're being asked to determine whether that officer is correct or not. Now, most DREs will will say, okay, I try to set that, or I do set that aside, and I try to, I start from scratch and I start over. But still, they're going to make a decision that's going to affect whether that other officer was correct or not. There are a lot of good DREs that will do that and say, okay, no, he was wrong. It's not this, it's that, or it's nothing. You're incorrect. Uh, the other the other objection is pre-existing condition. You know, they've never met this person ever before, and now they're making a medical and uh, scientific evaluation of their uh, of their actions and what's normal for them. And quite frankly, they have no records in for them, so determining what's normal for anyone is a tough thing. So well, Sarah, why don't you address those. those? Go ahead, Sarah, and address those uh, yeah. those issues. Sure. As far as the medical training goes, uh, the, the, I, I guess what, what would fall under the category of medical part of it is the officer taking a person's blood pressure. Well, I, I, that requires very little training. Uh, it, there are lots of folks that have a sphygmomanometer at home, or sphygmomanometer, however it's pronounced, at home to take their own blood pressure. <clears throat> Another thing they do is take the temperature. Uh, there's probably not an individual in this world that has a child in their home that has not taken their temperature to see what their temperature is. This is not, it, it, they're not doing some sort of you know, uh, aortic surgery. They're taking a temperature. They're taking a blood pressure. They're looking at someone's pupils. They're holding a card up next to it to a pupilometer, and they're making an observation as to what size the pupil appears to be. <clears throat> the thing that you also need to bear in mind is they are not basing their their expert opinion on one thing. They're basing it on everything that they observe. And sometimes when they're evaluating, because it is a rare occasion to find somebody who has only used one drug, generally these officers are going to run into polydrug use. And sometimes if they're taking a CNS depressant and a CNS stimulant, then you're going to get some competing interest in the observations the officer makes. This is another thing that DREs are trained in. So the medical training, I, I think, is, is, is kind of silly. It's not a good argument because the medical evaluations that they're making are very, very minor and very, very common. The next thing is the, off, the initial officer's observations. You can look at that one or two ways if you're defending it. If they don't talk to the initial officer, then they're not getting complete information. If they do talk to the initial officer, then they're predisposed. So it's kind of a, 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 a you know, you're cursed if you do and cursed if you don't. They need to talk to the initial officer. For example, if an individual is getting high on dust off, on inhalant, the initial officer is going to open the door to the car and that person is going to pour out onto the pavement. By the time they get them in front of a judicial official to get a warrant, they're fine. And nothing is going to show up in their blood test because you metabolize inhalants so very quickly. So it's important that they talk to the initial officer to make sure that they are making a good judgment on it. The next thing is pre-existing conditions, and Mark used the word normal. We don't use the word normal when we're talking about DREs. We use averages because... What's normal for one guy is not normal for the next. Recognize that completely. However, just like a medical doctor, when somebody comes in and they've got the flu, is going to look for signs and symptoms. The flu might be more severe in one person than it is in the other, but that doesn't mean the doctor can't say, you've got the flu. On average, you have the flu. And this is what drug, what drug recognition experts are doing, too. 
They're looking at everything that they see and then coming up with a category or category based on the signs and symptoms. So, Sarah, I have another question for you, and Mark, I'm going to ask you this question, too. I want to hear you, your opinions, as, and I want to try to force you to change sides a little bit. So, Sarah, <laughs> has there ever been an objection where, where someone raised an objection saying this DRE's testimony should not be admitted? The judge affirmed that objection, and you agreed with that affirmation. Um. I can't give you of any specific circumstance. The only time when I would agree with that is if you had a drug recognition expert who simply was not doing his job well. And law enforcement officers, defense attorneys, prosecutors, members of the judiciary come in all shapes and sizes and sorts. And some have more experience and some have less. And it's not that the officer was being crooked or corrupt, but he may not be as skilled at his job as the next DRE is. So, no, if the officer, if, if the officer doesn't do the best that he can to do a thorough job and make an analysis, then no, that officer shouldn't be allowed to testify. No officer should. <clears throat> if they're just cutting and pasting and basing on something they saw in another individual just to get a conviction. When I train prosecutors, I tell them all the time, we do not have time to prosecute innocent people. There are too many guilty ones. We don't prosecute innocent people. And, and Mark, uh, have you heard testimony from a DRE where you thought that that officer did a good job, that officer, and, and it was admitted, and in this case, uh, although I'm going to do due diligence for, for my client, but uh, the judge made the right decision in letting that in? Absolutely. Yeah, my job is to make sure, uh, in part, is to make sure that the state is following the rules and pro and they can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And once they do that, you know, then that then the appropriate decision is being made, and I'm okay with that. But if uh, the DRE is up there and they they go through my cross examination and they can answer the questions, they can clearly they followed a procedure that they follow all the time, and they do it in order and they do the right things and all of those things. Sure, I mean by in and of itself. I have no objection to a DRE uh, testifying. The question is, is what weight it gets? Well, it gets more weight, obviously, the more that, uh, the, the better they testify and the better work they did. So, Mark, Sarah mentioned averages. She talked about averages. They're, they're looking at averages. And one of the issues that popped up into my head is that our averages, do averages equal beyond a reasonable doubt? Well, they don't, and that's why the, the judges hear a DRE, and they may either allow them to reach an ultimate conclusion, or they may not, depending on the state. But it's still, every judge that I know of is going to listen to that DRE and then say to the prosecutor, and what was the test result? What was the blood alcohol level that you that came up with either on a breath test or a blood draw, or what, what did it show? And that's and that's what the that's where it comes beyond a reasonable doubt. Certainly, the DRE testimony is one of those tools that can get them there. I think you mentioned earlier the question of probable cause. Certainly, it gets them past the probable cause and gets them to the next part of the investigative status. But yeah, but just by itself, I don't believe a DRE testimony is enough. In addition, because that DRE did not see this person actually drive. They can, act, they can say, yes, at the moment I'm examining that person, they appear to be under the influence of something. It's not, it's not 100% certain. They still need, we still need the, the observing officer, did this person cross the line, were they driving dangerously, et cetera. And then the next question is, is okay, what's the scientific test show?
Sarah, these DREs need continuing education, do they not? There are always new drugs coming out uh, that uh, quite often police officers may not know this year, but they're going to know about in 2019. What are the educational, ongoing educational requirements for, for DREs in the United States? Well, I tell you what, before we get to that, how about the, let, let's go ahead and just cover what they have to go through to even become a DRE. Okay. Um, the first thing that they've got to do is go through standardized field sobriety test training as any officer that's, you know, that's dealing with alcohol-related impaired driving would do, and that's generally a 24-hour course. After that, they have to complete another course that's called A-RIDE, Advanced Roadside Impaired Driving Enforcement. That's a 16-hour course generally. And then they have to be admitted to DRE school. Now, you don't just sign up for DRE school and you get to go. The officer has to apply. They have to have recommendations from the prosecutor's office in their jurisdiction. They have to have additional recommendations. And then there's a panel in every state that will review the applicants and determine whether or not they're going to accept them to the school. If they do, then they go to a course, that, to the DRE training course. It starts with a preschool and then the DRE school and then the DRE uh, field certification. That is anywhere between 112 and 132 hours to complete all that coursework. Once they get done with all of that, they have to have a minimum of 12 evaluations. They have to have a minimum number of drag, drug categories that they observed. They have to have toxicological corroboration. Their rolling log, where they put all their information in, what categories they called and what the tox came back as, has to be reviewed. They have to have a curriculum vitae that has to be reviewed by the DRE coordinator for the state. They have to have a, a certification knowledge examination. They have to be endorsed by two DRE instructors. They have to be certified by the state and regional DECP, the, the drug recognition coordinator. They have to have a certification that's endorsed by the International Association of the Chiefs of Police. And then they have to have continuing education, which requires coursework every year and recertification every two years. So once you become a DRE, you've got to go through a lot. Um, but the other thing that you know, along with the, all, all the classes they go through, once they've been through the coursework, then they've got to do evaluations. The way it's done here in North Carolina is uh, up at the Wake County Jail in Raleigh that there's a lot of individuals that do weekend time. So the DRE uh, uh, students, the ones that don't quite have their certification yet, will go there on a Friday. They offer the people, you know, hamburgers or whatever, and take them through the evaluation. Somebody has to observe them do that. Their evaluation has to be correct. They have to see, you know, if 12 people came in because they've got to do 12 of them and everybody was, you know, high on marijuana, that wouldn't suffice because they've got to see all the different categories. It is a very long and tedious process. And then, again, they've got to keep going through all this training afterwards. And every two years, they've got to have evaluations that are, again, looked at by a DRE supervisor, by a trainer, and, and make sure that they're doing their stuff properly. It's, it's rigorous. And... It's an awful lot of work on these officers. They're also the ones that, even though they've worked a regular shift at 4 o'clock in the morning, they get a call from an officer who says, I don't know what I got, but I got something. And then they've got to go out and do these evals. And the eval doesn't take 15 minutes. It's about a two-hour investment for the officer that's doing these evaluations. The officers that become DREs do it because it's important to them, not because they're getting additional pay or glory or anything else. So, Mark, uh, <clears throat> What impact do DREs have on the court system? I believe there are two things. Uh, first of all, it can, it can make the system more efficient. You've got somebody with a, a good amount of training uh, or an exceptional amount of training, depending on how you view it. 
and that can make the system more efficient because what it does is it allows you know defendants who may not remember or may be in denial to see the what they to be reminded what they went through and why somebody felt that they were under the influence and then why there was a scientific test that, that supported that so I think that it can make the system more efficient in that way. I, but the other part is that it can make uh, other officers lazy. And that, is a, and that is an ongoing thing that everybody has to watch out for, is that it is, okay, I pulled this person over. I think they're on something. I'm just going to call a DRE. And it makes it easier for them to, call, to call, pull somebody over because then – if they call for a DRE, the DRE says, "Oh no, it wasn't." You know, it wasn't, and there's no ramifications to that. Then the the observing officer says, "Oh well, maybe next time." So it 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 requires that the system stay true and that we stay vigilant within the system. But overall, I think the DREs can actually help the system in that way. It makes it, uh, I believe, it makes the court system run a little more efficiently. And Sarah, I bet this is something we can all agree on, is that vigilance in terms of professionalism for all of our officers, whether they're DREs, whether they're standard officers, is something that uh, as citizens, as, as prosecutors, as defense attorneys, so that we must, we must absolutely uh, be vigilant and make sure our officers preserve that high degree of professionalism. Oh, absolutely. I, 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 you know, I, I, I agree 100%. Sarah, you want hey, to go first? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, I, 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 go ahead, Sarah. We'll go Sarah first, uh, and then Mark on professionalism. Okay. I agree 100. percent And I'm sure you know. I think probably one of the things that that Mark could agree with one of the I, I think one of the difficulties in being a criminal defense attorney, what I've heard anecdotally, because I've never done it, but is that sometimes criminal defendants are not completely candid with their attorney and don't give them all the facts and details. And what a criminal defense attorney wants to be able to do is to talk to his client in a in an educated way with all the information that, that he can possibly get. And when a criminal defense attorney has an opportunity to sit down with a drug recognition expert who does have all this training and who is doing it because they think it's an important job and is able to give them all the details and facts that they've seen, that puts the criminal defense attorney in a position where they can go back to their client and say, hey, look, here's the situation. This is what was seen, and this is what it means, and I need you to tell me what's going on. It, it, being able to advise your client on what they're looking at, I think, is one of the most important things to a criminal defense attorney so they can tell them what what's potentially down the road for them. The, the DREs that I know here in North Carolina are the best-trained and, and most, in my opinion, most reliable officers when it comes to um, – finding out if a person is impaired on, on something other than alcohol. We've got tons of officers that are top-notch when it comes to alcohol-related um, impaired driving. But when you get into some of these other drugs like heroin, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. And it's a much bigger ballgame than it used to be. I hear anecdotally from law enforcement officers here in North Carolina that they are making more impaired driving stops that are drugs other than alcohol than they are alcohol-based. And I think that's a trend with the legalization of marijuana, um, the 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 heroin epidemic. It's a trend we're going to see keep going up, and these DREs. Uh, 
serve two purposes. Number one, if a person is impaired on some on an impairing substance other than um, alcohol, <clears throat> they can detect it. And number two, and probably most importantly, not only to me as a prosecutor, but to Mark as a defense attorney, the first thing that a DRE's protocol does is a medical rule out. So we are not putting a person who is having a stroke, who is having some situation related to diabetes, who does have an undiagnosed brain tumor, from being charged with a crime that they're not guilty of because they have a medical condition. And that probably is, is the greatest beauty of a drug recognition expert because that's the first thing they're looking for. And if there's a medical rule out, that person is going to the hospital and not to the jail. Mark, what are your comments about professionalism and vigilance for our police officers? Well, it's it's very important. I mean, Sarah noted on some of the, on some of those areas, but uh, I'll go right to the heart of it: is that the system only works when all the players are on the same page and they're doing their work professionally. And Sarah's right. I want, as a defense attorney, I want the information. I want to be able to go to my client and tell them, yeah, this officer does things, his reputation is he does things properly. I've read his report, he did do things properly. Here's where we're at, now tell me what's going on. At the same time, we wanna make sure that the officers uh, aren't policing themselves. And and things become rushed and, and with you know the, all the different drugs out there and those kind of things, we're in a situation where officers are sometimes at a disadvantage uh, as to figure out where what the crime is or whether there's even a crime happening. And when they, if they take a shortcut, that's where it becomes a problem. And so the professionalism really is, okay, this is the criteria that have been laid out for DREs. This is what you must follow. Follow it. If you you're, if you got a ride training, which is the lesser than DRE, then follow that protocol. But and if you're going to do field sobriety tests, do them properly. Once we do that, then this, then we all know where we're going to go. It's when somebody decides, no, this person is under the influence. And I don't have to be that vigilant about doing the test properly. I don't have to do, be that vigilant about doing the doing all the criteria and the, all the observations. I know he's guilty. That's when we have the problem. So here's a uh, next question I want both of you to think about. What advice do you have for that decision maker, that adjudicator, that judicial officer, that judge? Uh, and, and also, I'm sure that many of you have, uh, know that administrative law judges, certainly in the Department of Motor Vehicles, make determinations about license revocations as well. So what, what advice do you have or would you give to that judicial officer? And uh, Sarah, let's start with you. What advice do you have for that, that judge? Um, the number one piece of advice I can give is to exercise common sense, just like we tell a jury to do. And bear in mind that even though a lot of this stuff may seem a bit foreign, taking a person into a dark room to observe their pupils, that's not something that judges listen to all day long. Um, uh, taking a person's blood pressure to determine if, they're, if, if they have an impairing substance on board, that's unusual. That's not what rank-and-file law enforcement officers do. But bearing in mind that every single thing that these officers do, nothing standing by itself is sufficient. And what the officers are doing, what the officers are trained to do, is to look at every single factor before they make a determination. That's why there's 12 steps in the protocol. That's why they ask questions. And also bear in mind that even as they're going through the 12 steps, 
that entire time, hour, two hours that it takes to do the evaluation, they're in the company of this individual. And a trained law enforcement officer, I mean, it's a marvelous thing to, to do a ride along with a law enforcement officer and see the things that they do where they're just chatting people up about general things and making observations about the way they're able to talk, about their cognitive abilities and all those things. For, for judicial officials to listen to these officers and bear in mind that along with some of the stuff that is written down in a protocol are also things that are based on common sense. If you fall out of a car door, there's probably something going on. And if your legs aren't broken, it might be an impairing substance. And the fact that you don't smell alcohol doesn't mean that you aren't impaired. And the fact that a doctor prescribed it doesn't mean that you can take it and drive your car. You know, it, 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 it is disconcerting sometimes when we try these cases and, and, and don't get the result that I think is an appropriate result. When it's a medication that there's ads on TV all day long saying, do not drive a car after you've taken this. Is it curing whatever's wrong with you? Sure it is. Does that mean you can drive? No, it doesn't. It is legal to consume alcohol under the age of 21. Do it on your front porch. Mark, what's your advice for judges uh, handling DREs in their courtrooms? Well, I guess, as expected, mine might be somewhat to the opposite of Sarah's, and it's basically... <laughs> Make sure that all the, the boxes have been checked. Make sure that the officer did what he was supposed to do. Make sure that the first the, the observing officer who made the stop, that he, that he had a good reason to do so. Make sure that all the, the protocol file have been followed. And if you're not hearing the person, the DRE's qualifications, or you're not hearing uh, even in a short version that they've done all, all 12 of these evaluations, then that's not good enough. And then the final thing, of course, is what are the test results? That's a, that's a big one. You know, it, one of the things that, that Sarah said, and I do want to touch on is, she mentioned Ambien earlier, and, and it's, a, it's an interesting subject because there are people who take Ambien totally legally, go to bed, and get arrested sometime in the next eight hours, sleep driving. And th through no fault of their own. I mean, they put the keys away. They've gone to bed. And, in fact, I, I speak from experience because I've had a client, and the judge had real problems with uh, convicting her of driving under the influence of Ambien because she did everything she was supposed to do. She's found 12 miles away with her dog in the passenger seat driving down a street at a very slow speed, and when the officer wraps on, stops her and wraps on the window, she's still asleep. She only wakes up during the process. And, you know, doctors and experts uh, that, that I use all said, yeah, that, that's a huge problem. So really it is what the, what the judge needs to do is listen to the whole thing. And I'll use the term that, that uh, Sarah used. The judge used, needs to use common sense in determining whether what he's hearing or what she's hearing is appropriate and meets enough to get beyond a reasonable doubt to convict this person of a crime that will have great ramifications in their life for years. And I think both of you would agree that, that nobody wants a judge to simply take judicial notice of a DRE, that, that every time one testifies, they need to put their qualifications up on the stand, they need to lay the foundation, they need to do all those evidentiary things that you would expect of any expert or evaluator who is testifying uh, in a courtroom. I would agree with that. We, we advise prosecutors, even when in, in, 
in North Carolina, <clears throat> North Carolina, our misdemeanor court is district court. And I've had times when I've got 100 DWIs on the calendar and, you know, started at 930 in the morning and we go until 5 o'clock at night. And you're not going to get 100 tried, but I've gotten eight or nine tried. Um, we advise our prosecutors to always take the DRE through the steps. Now, in some of our rural jurisdictions where the judges know these DREs, where they have testified in front of these judges, you know, five, six, seven times before, where the judge knows all the DRE's uh, qualifications, there have been circumstances where the judge has said, look, I know they're a DRE, and I know they've done their training. I'll go tender them as an expert, and I'll go ahead and accept them as an expert. Um, in front of a jury, never. But um, I think the only circumstance would be if you've got a judge who knows that DRE well, has seen that DRE testify repeatedly, uh, you know, maybe they can slide a little bit. We don't recommend it, but it happens. But that would only be a circumstance where the judge is already familiar with the DRE program, and we've had it here in North Carolina for a number of years, and most of our judges are, are familiar with it. doesn't mean they, that they accept it out of hand, but they're familiar with the program, and they know that it's not just the officer showed up at work one day and said, hey, I want to be a DRE, and they're like, okay, well, here's a shinier badge for you to wear. It's not like that. Not like that. <laughs> shinier badge, indeed. Mark, any comment on that? No, I totally agree. I don't have a problem with a judge taking notice of an expert's qualifications, and, and quite frankly, if it's somebody that I've had, you know, I've had in trial a number of times, and um, I'll, you know, say, no, I will stipulate to his background and to his training, and then the judge can make that determination. Uh, the the real question then is, and, and I think Sarah agrees, is that you might go through the, you might shorten going through the qualifications, but you never shorten going through what were their observations, what did they do, did they do it right? Right. Correct. So, Sarah, any any last words, and then we'll we'll have Mark share his last words with us. So, Sarah. Um. That. To me, the DRE program is just one of the most outstanding things that has happened in highway safety, and again, for two reasons. Number one, because the DRE's first obligation is to make sure that they have somebody who is actually impaired on something and doesn't have a medical problem going on. That, to me, is tremendous, absolutely tremendous. Um, the, the second thing is these men and women that become DREs put so much work and effort into making sure that they are doing their job and that they are doing it properly. It's very frustrating to me when there's a situation in the 12-step protocol that they go through where they, for some reason, cannot complete a step, and and the defense says, well, we need to throw the whole thing out because that's simply not fair. Um, but the studies have shown that when there have been studies on DRE, that it is better than 90% accurate in determining a category or categories of drugs. And that's a good thing for everybody that gets charged with a crime so that if they are convicted, they're rightfully convicted. Doesn't get charged with a crime because they have a medical reason and that gets detected. And it's also good for anybody that ever gets in their car, puts the key in the ignition, and shares the road with people that are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, I, to me, if, if a DRE comes in and testifies as to impairment, I feel confident that the DRE is, is telling me information that is accurate because I know that they don't just walk in, look around the room, fill out a piece of paper, and walk out. That's not what they do. They, they wouldn't work so hard for the, for, for the designation if they didn't care about it. And I think that benefits all of us, including the, the defense and the defendant. So, Mark, last words. 
Well, I would agree with Sarah, but but change it on just one side is that you know when the when the uh, DRE walks into the courtroom, they don't get treated like anybody else. They get treated like everybody else. They don't, as I think she put it, they don't have a shiny badge that is different than everybody else so that they get extra treatment. That's what the judges need to do is hold them to the same level that they would hold any other witness. Just because they've gone through DRE training doesn't mean they can't make mistakes and doesn't mean they're not human. Thank you both. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Sarah, uh, for sharing this information with our judges. I know this uh, for many judges and for many uh, defense attorneys and new prosecutors, this can be a controversial issue. I know that I have no doubt that more studies will be conducted on the uh, efficacy of DREs in America's courtrooms and on the field. And uh, we look forward to uh, sharing more resources with our judges. Thanks for joining us today. But before you go, remember, you can find guest bios, links to the resources mentioned in the podcast, and over 150 other resources, including recorded webcasts, self-study courses, documents, bench cards, videos, and more at NJC On Demand, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you haven't already logged in, go to judges.org today and look for the NJC On Demand button to take advantage of this great resource for judges. Bye-bye.